You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If we haven't met before, I'm, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning. So if you want to make your way to page 947 on those black hardcover Bibles or whatever other Bible you would be uh, using this morning, uh, that's where we'll be. Shane mentioned it a little while ago, but uh, today we have reached the end of our Rhythms of Grace series. It's been with us. Uh, this is something we've been in for most of the summer, uh, looking at nine rhythms or habits that are really central to the Christian life. So here's the big picture just to remind you as we're closing out the series. We want to both be faithful disciples, faithful followers of Jesus, and we want to help make disciples of Jesus. And in order to do that, we need a shared framework. We need to have a shared idea of what we're actually aiming for as we seek to be disciples and to, to make disciples. So I hope this series has, has given you at least some of that shared framework, some of that shared goal of what we're, what we're aiming for. And we're going to close the series today uh, with a rhythm that we call bodily consecration. Bodily consecration. Uh, and my bet is, if you've ever looked at a list of Liberty Church's nine rhythms of grace, and one of them just sounded really odd to you, it's this one. It's this one. So let's just, let's just put that on the table this morning. Uh, maybe this word, this phrase, bodily consecration, made you think of a monastery. Uh, made you, maybe it made you think of high religious orders that some people take. Maybe it just made you think of like a Christian bro at the gym who talks way too much about his body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's thinking like, yeah, this month I'm going to really consecrate my triceps. Next month, maybe I'll move on to my calves, something like that. Hopefully, whatever you think when you hear that phrase, hopefully we'll clear up a little confusion today. Uh, when we talk about bodily consecration, it means that actually our bodies are an often overlooked or even neglected aspect of our discipleship. Christians talk a lot about Jesus' work changing our hearts. We should also ask, what of our body? What about our bodies? The body plays a, a central role in discipleship. We do nothing in this life apart from our bodies. An author named Tish Harrison Warren puts it this way. She says, In the scriptures we find that the body is not incidental to our faith, but integral to our worship. It's not incidental to our faith, it's integral to our worship. Now at the same time, like almost nothing else, our bodies can stir up either a sense of pride or despair. They can stir up in us a lot of self-righteousness or a lot of shame. Because they are tangible, because they're observable, because they're always on display, nothing initiates comparison with one another quite like our bodies. So when you even heard me say the word body the first time this morning, did, did some of you not immediately like straighten up a little bit more or maybe slouch a little bit more? You maybe thought about uh, what you ate the past couple days, maybe thought about the last time you exercised. You might have thought about sex. You might have thought about what you've used your, your hands and your feet and your eyes to do even this past week. You might have also thought about the sickness or the disease or the ailments that you're experiencing right now physically. All of those things involve our bodies. And if we can't talk honestly about our bodies as we 
seek to both be disciples and make disciples of Jesus, then really at the end of the day, all we're talking about are abstractions and theories. We're not actually talking about real life unless we can talk about our physical bodies. So at Liberty Church, it really needs to be normal to have appropriate, it's a really key word here, appropriate and healthy conversations about the body. For the body to not be this this compartmentalized aspect of life that we're just supposed to deal with in isolation, but actually one that is inseparable from the rest of our lives as we pursue knowing and following Jesus. There are a lot of texts in Scripture that we could look at to talk about bodily consecration, but one that really has shaped our paradigm and this rhythm of grace for us comes in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and that word actually in the original language means sibling, so we'll say, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, you have declared that your kingdom is among us. And not only in the spiritual realms of life, but in the physical realms of life as well. So we ask now that you would open our eyes to see your kingdom, open our ears to hear it, open our hearts to hold it, and open our hands to serve it. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Two things uh, for us to consider today in light of Romans 12 and bodily consecration. Number one, our body's worth. And number two, our bodily worship. Our body's worth and our bodily worship. So first, our body's worth. Uh, The book of Romans is an incredible treasure, like all books in the Bible, but I think Romans has a particular punch that it packs in terms of the depth of truth it communicates in a relatively short period of time. So for the first 11 chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been laying out a compelling case for why we all need Jesus. It's maybe the shortest way I can put it. How sin levels the playing field, that there's no one who's righteous, whether we have a religious pedigree and we practice religious activities or whether we're a rebel from God and we kind of run away purposefully to do our own thing. All of us have fallen short. None of us are righteous. But he also goes on, Paul, to describe in Romans how through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God can be both just, the one who upholds his standard of holiness and perfection, and the justifier, the vindicator of the one who has faith in Christ. And chapter 11 ends with Paul erupting in praise. It's this doxology that he just kind of bursts forth with. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So these these first two verses of Romans 12 then are really a hinge in the book of Romans. Paul begins for the rest of the book to unpack the implications of Jesus' work, of how we're supposed to live in light of what he has done. And so the, the word therefore in verse one here carries a massive amount of weight. 
It carries a massive amount of weight. Paul is saying, because of all of this, because of all the work that God has done, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A couple things then for us to see right from the start here. One, this is what makes bodily consecration truly a rhythm of grace. Of grace. How we use our bodies is a response to the gospel. It's a response to the mercies of God. It's not some way for for us to earn something from God. God has shown us immeasurable grace. He's lavished mercy upon us. We use our bodies in light of that. And then number two, in a way that really we have a hard time understanding because we're so removed culturally from this letter, this would have been a bombshell for the original audience for Paul to write these words. This is not how first century people in the Mediterranean world perceived the physical body. The, the prevailing view at the time was that the physical material body, the physical material world even, had little to no use. At best, uh, the body was, as one scholar put it, an embarrassing encumbrance. An embarrassing encumbrance. It got in the way of the stuff that actually was important in life. Bodies were viewed as tombs in which the soul or the spirit were imprisoned. And so the goal of existence, the pinnacle of existence, would be to somehow escape this prison of the body and live a a purely spiritual life. But here's Paul, a leader in this emerging sect of Christians, claiming that the physical body has incredible worth, that it's not dirty or a prison, but that it's holy. That it's not an embarrassing encumbrance, but something actually that's acceptable and even pleasing to God. This would have been incredibly new for many people in the original audience in that first century Mediterranean world. But of course, in the story of God, this is old news. In the story of God's redemption, the physical body has always had worth. The body has had worth because God created us with bodies. He made us in his image, not just as souls, but as bodies. When we then fell into sin, and in all the ages since, people do horrible things with and to their bodies. When we rebel against God, that that might take root in the immaterial part of us, in the soul, in the heart, but we actually carry out our rebellion with our bodies. We act or speak in ways that, that reject God's good design. We hurt and we abuse and we steal and we kill and we need bodies. We use bodies to to do those things. Likewise, death and pain and ailments of our bodies, the, the fact that our bodies weaken and decline with age, these are all ripple effects of humanity's fall into sin. And as tragic as these things are, I just want to invite you to consider this this morning. Aging and death have become, in the story of God, powerful and inescapable reminders that things in this world are not the way they're meant to be. Our bodies, as they age, as they decline, when we're injured, when horrible things happen physically, that's a reminder. It's an embodied reminder that sin is powerful, that sin has consequences. Francis of Assisi, in our kind of circles, we probably know him most for um, composing the hymn, um, All Creatures of Our God and King. That's, that's Francis of Assisi. Francis famously referred to his own aging body as brother ass. Is that not a great phrase? 
I'm going to totally steal that and use that. I would, you're welcome to as well. He referred to his aging body as brother S, meaning it was stubborn. It did not do what it was supposed to do. It did not cooperate the way the body is meant to. And yet, as he says, it's a brother. It remains a gift from God. It, it remains not only an embodied reminder of the power of sin, but an embodied reminder of our longing for redemption. And thanks be to God, that redemption comes in Jesus Christ. Which, as Shay already said earlier this morning, is the strongest case for the worth of our physical body. That God did not abandon it. That he did not define salvation as us escaping our physical bodies. That he did not reach down into this world and pull our souls out, but he took on flesh and entered in. Jesus Christ, God the Son, took on human flesh. I want you to think this morning about the worth that that imparts to your physical body. That Jesus was born of a woman. He came into the world through the physical body of a woman. That he added to his full and complete divinity a full and complete humanity. How that works, the mechanics of that, is one of the greatest mysteries of our faith. But what's not a mystery is that Jesus' physical body is at the very center of our salvation. If there is no physical body of Jesus, there is no salvation for us. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes, Jesus reconciles us in his body of flesh. In John chapter 6, Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven. And as Jesus says there, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, since therefore the children, meaning us, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Lest we forget, it's not Jesus' death, just, just his death that was a bodily act of his. Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. His body got up and walked out of the tomb. He appeared to and ate with his disciples. Thomas put his finger in the nail holes in Jesus' hand and in the spear hole in Jesus' side. And Jesus then ascended to heaven in physical form. His whole person, fully God, fully man, now fully glorified, is seated at the right hand of the Father. If there is a stronger case for the worth of our physical body than the incarnation and the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus Christ. I haven't found it. I haven't found it. And thanks be to God, one day we too will experience our own resurrection. It'll be a new body. It'll be an imperishable body, but you can be certain it will be a physical body. Now, just as in the first century, the worth of the body remains a really powerful distinctive of the Christian faith. Other religions, other worldviews either deify or disdain the body. They either see the body as ultimate, sometimes even worshiping it, or they see the body as, as ugly. Christians see the body differently. God has made it. Christ has redeemed it. The Holy Spirit indwells it, and on the last day, God will raise it up. So the body is not something for us to worship, but something for us to employ in our worship. It's not a a prison to escape or an embarrassing encumbrance, but by the mercies of God, it is something that has incredible worth. So if that's the worth of our bodies, then second, let's talk about our bodily worship. Our bodily worship. 
I think by default, if anyone were to ask us, uh, what is worship? And we were trying to explain to someone who maybe wasn't familiar, we would probably default to a spiritual definition of some kind. We probably wouldn't immediately start talking about our physical bodies. But to, li- to be a living sacrifice, as Paul is saying here, is to use your whole life, it's to use all that you are, which is body and soul, in devotion to the glory of God. As Dallas Willard once put it, we cannot be faithful to God apart from the active involvement of our bodies. We do things, and the things we do reveal our values, our worship. So when Paul here is referring to bodies as a living sacrifice, he's saying that now, through the work of Jesus, instead of embodied rebellion, instead of using our bodies to to run away from God, to do things that are against his design, we can actually embody obedience. We can use our bodies to advance God's purposes in the world. And it's a living sacrifice because unlike the atoning once-for-all work of Jesus, unlike all of the animal sacrifices throughout the Old Testament that pointed the way to Jesus, our sacrifice most often at least for our, however long a life we're given, does not include our death, but instead includes, for many, decades of daily choices to use our bodies in ways that bring honor to him. So you can think of it this way. Instead of dying for our sins, which we could never die to atone for our sins like Jesus did for us, but instead of dying for our sins, we're meant to live for God. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. And I would say, at least in some ways, that's harder That's harder. It it would be easier in some ways to die when you're young than to live a lifetime of sacrificial obedience into your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. The longer you live, the more suffering you're bound to experience. The longer you live, the more corruption, the more effects of our fall into sin you're going to experience. As Paul says in Philippians, it was our words of encouragement this morning, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus can be honored in our bodies, whether by life or by death. And so in some ways, if we actually stop and think about it, it would be easier to go and be with Jesus sooner. And so if you want to learn what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, if you want to really grow in what it means to be a living sacrifice, learn it from people who have lived a lot longer than you have. Learn it from men and women who have been offering their lives for decades. There are some men and some women in this room who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s and at least one in their 90s. I'm so glad you're here, Timmy. Saints, saints of God, saints of God. And I really, I hope you feel this, but it it just bears saying, at least every so often, I cannot express how grateful I am that you are part of this church family. I I hope you know how valued you are, how needed you are, how respected you are in this church. It's it's actually not that common for churches that are about 10 years old and have a lot of like 20 and 30-somethings and a million young kids running around everywhere to have as many gray hairs as we have here at this church. And I don't take that for granted. I see that as a, as a real kindness of God that you're here this morning. I was thinking about it this week. Uh, discipleship, Jesus defines discipleship as taking up our cross and following him. And, and when we're all young bucks, we're like, yeah, no problem. I got it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to live my life for Jesus. I got it. But the more wise and the more aged among us know how heavy that cross is. 
and know how hard it is to carry a cross like that, not the first 10 feet, but the next 10,000. It's an entirely different cost to present your bodies as a living sacrifice year after year, decade after decade. For those of you who are doing it, for those of you who have done it, may we follow your example as you have followed Christ. Paul writes here that our, our living sacrifices are holy and acceptable to God. And that's really where we get the word consecration in our rhythm of, of bodily consecration. To consecrate something is to set it apart, to see it as sacred. And so we use that word, at least in church circles, we use the word consecration for the elements of the Lord's Supper. We set apart the bread and the wine from their ordinary and common uses for a holy use. Uh, we use that word for ordinations of leaders in Jesus' church. We set them apart for a specific role, a specific work. And in light of this text, we use that word for our physical bodies. We're meant to see our bodies as sacred. We're meant to see our bodies as something that is set apart to worship God. Our bodies are not supposed to be, verse 2, conformed to this world. They're not supposed to be characterized by, as one author puts it, the sin-dominated, death-producing realm in which people exist apart from Jesus. And there are, and there have been throughout the ages, a number of patterns of this world that we might be tempted to conform to when it comes to the body. One would be escapism, to see the body as a, as a prison to escape. One would be stoicism, to be indifferent or callous to any kind of pleasure or pain. One would be narcissism, being completely selfish and self-absorbed. Another would be asceticism, rejecting all desire and all indulgence, essentially pursuing suffering and pain, trying to suffer. Or maybe the opposite of that, hedonism, embracing and indulging in everything, whatever you want to do, whatever you feel like, you do it. Bodily consecration makes us, as Christians, nonconformists. Nonconformists. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 2. By the mercies of God as living sacrifices, we are to think about and to use our bodies differently. So what does bodily consecration include? What are we actually talking about when we're talking about bodily consecration? It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. Paul here offers just a summary saying, be transformed, be renewed in your mind so that actually in any given moment, you'll know how to live, how to speak, how to act. And he goes into more detail in the rest of Romans and in, in some of his other letters. For this morning, just as we're trying to do an overview of this rhythm of grace, let me offer just some practical ideas, practical points for what bodily consecration, what bodily worship looks like. And the first one is this. It means we recognize the deep meaning and purpose of everyday mundane actions. Not just significant things, however we might define significant, but everyday mundane actions. When we present our bodies to God as living sacrifices, it means that, that gathered worship on Sunday is not the only important hour of the week. Not even necessarily the most important hour, as some people have termed it over the years. It means that every hour is important, that every action has deeper meaning. Quoted her, her once already, but I love her stuff on this. In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Warren uses brushing her teeth as an example. Uh, and she writes this. She says, When I brush my teeth, I am pushing back in the smallest of ways the death and chaos that will inevitably overtake my body. She writes, I am dust polishing dust. And yet, I am not only dust. When God formed man from the dust, he breathed into him through his lips and teeth his very breath. So 
Tish Warren writes, so I will fight against my body's fallenness. I have never thought about brushing my teeth that way until I read Tish Warren's book. I don't know, maybe you have. Maybe you guys are just holier than I am. But I want you to see that's the invitation in any everyday mundane action. It's an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Each handshake, each diaper change, each meal preparation, each teeth brushing, these can be acts of worship, embodied acts of worship. Second thing, bodily consecration means that we consider what we consume, what we take into our bodies. So what we eat and what we drink matters. Uh, What we consume affects so much, and I know most of you know this, it affects our energy levels, it affects our sleep, our overall health, uh, even our life expectancy. More importantly, though, what we consume says something about what we actually believe. And bodily consecration means that we are people who both feast and fast. Good food and good drink are gifts of God that you are meant to enjoy. Throughout the Bible, there there are days and weeks and seasons of feasting, times to eat and to drink lavishly, far beyond what's necessary just simply to, to sustain life. And if that's hard for you, if you find it hard to really dive into feasting, I want you to see feasting in the Bible for what it really is. It is the grace and the abundance of a God who lavishes his his mercy upon you. God does not just simply give you the bare minimum for what you need. He's a God who abundantly pours out his grace and favor on you. Feasting is meant to, to step into that. But there are also days and seasons of fasting where we abstain, where we forego. And on those days and those seasons, we remember our dependence and that it's God who must provide for us. And so if you're, if you're always indulging in food and drink, if you're always feasting, and it's actually relatively easy to live a life of all feasting for most of us in the, in the culture in which we live, if you're always feasting, then plan a time in the near future to fast. Not as some kind of fad dieting exercise, but really as a reminder that the fullness of the kingdom of God has not yet come. That we have not yet made it to the great wedding supper of the Lamb where it will be a feast forever. That, this, that we're in between the already and the not yet. Fast for that. Third thing, uh, bodily consecration means that we exercise and or physically exert ourselves. So like food, exercise, physical appearance can become a god. It can become, and it has in our culture in many ways, has become an idol, something that we worship. But on the other end of the spectrum, we actually become poor stewards of our bodies if we if we allow them to slip into disuse, if we don't use them for what they were designed to be used for. Your body was not made by God to be sedentary in a way that it's super easy for everybody in our society to be sedentary. Now, now age and injury and disability can make us sedentary, and there's no shame in that. That's one of those ripple effects of our fall into sin. But it's one thing for us, and right and good, to accept our limits and to cope with the effects of the fall. It's another thing, though, to reject the gift that we've been given by God, a body made by God to be physically active, to use for physical exertions. So in short, we're saying here, use what God has given you. Use it. Fourth thing, bodily consecration means that we view both rest and work as acts of worship. 
So Greg Kabachian, our church planning resident here, preached a couple weeks ago on Sabbath. And if you missed it, it was a fantastic sermon. I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But physical rest is an act of worship. It's a reminder of our dependence. It's an act of dependence in itself. It's, it's us saying that it's God who upholds the universe and not us. It's a reminder, as the psalmist says, that unless God builds the house, we labor in vain. And that one of the most practical gifts God gives to his beloved people is sleep each and every day. Work, though, is also an act of worship. It's part of how we image God, who himself is a worker. And Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians that that we are to work heartily as servants for Jesus, working for God and not for men. And he says there in Colossians 3, whatever you do in word or deed, of course, which require our bodies to do, in word or deed, do everything in honor of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And a fifth thing, and the last one I'll mention for this morning, bodily consecration means that we practice sexual fidelity. Sexual fidelity. Bodily consecration involves both restraint and expression in our sexuality. So there, there are varying types of sexual expression that in the design of God, in the words of Scripture, they would call a misuse or misdeeds of the body. And we live in a cultural moment and Many cultures have had the same thing where, where the, the, the wisdom of the age is essentially always express yourself. Whatever you find in your body to do, express it. And so bodily consecration or, or non-conformity to the patterns of this world will often mean for Christians restraint. At the same time, the same time, within the good design of God, within a marriage between a husband and a wife, too much restraint is also misuse of the body. Following Jesus in our lives means both putting sin to death and actually stepping into life. It's both of those things. As Paul wrote just several chapters earlier in Romans chapter 6, don't present your bodies as instruments to sin for unrighteousness, but actually do present them to God as, as, as people who have been brought from death to life. He's saying in short, don't just avoid the bad. Christianity is not just avoid the bad, it's actually step into the good and pursue the good. And when it comes to at least sexuality, I don't think enough Christians or churches talk about that part, the pursuing the good part. So without any desire to sensationalize, let me just say this this morning. Married Christian couples should have a good sex life. They should have good sex lives. The kind of sex lives that are free from the guilt and the shame and the abuse that is so prevalent in the the patterns that conform to this world. We we have something in the design of God better than that. Better than that. What a hypersexualized culture has to offer pales in comparison. Pales in comparison. And I hope you know this experientially, married couples in the room. It pales in comparison to the enjoyment of sex as a consecrated, sacred, physical and spiritual act of worship. Now, if you're married and that's not your experience, I also want you to hear from me this morning, you're not the only one. You're not the only one. And I would beg you, don't isolate yourself in that. Don't don't make that a part of your life, a part of your discipleship that you feel like you've got to go over somewhere else on your own and figure out. Find other Christians that you trust. Find Christians you can talk to about this and pursue health. Because bodily consecration is never simply abstaining from evil. It's also pursuing the good. As you're hearing, bodily consecration includes so much. We could talk about this for 
more hours. I won't put you through that this morning. But in time, over many years as a church family together, we will. We will talk about this. For today, if you've at least begun to consider the worth of your physical body, if you've at least considered more the opportunity your physical body affords you for worship, then we're at least on the right, the right road. Men and women, you have been created body and soul by God our Father. You belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Your body is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Sin, of course, continues to wreak havoc. Sin continues to unleash hell on how we see and how we use our bodies. As Francis put it, Brother Ass continues his stubborn decline. We know that. We experience it. But by taking on human flesh, by sharing in your physical likeness, by bodily rising from the grave, Jesus Christ has forever cemented the worth of your body. As you bear the image of the man of dust, thanks be to God, you will also bear the image of the man of heaven. He will raise you up on that last day with a physical body. So therefore, friends, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. May you know the worth of your physical body and may you set it apart to worship the one who has gifted it to you. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, God, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus. We thank you especially for the incarnation, for the value the incarnation of Jesus imparts to the physical body, that our salvation is not just our souls escaping the physical, but Jesus entering in. And as we prepare to come to this table, which is the picture, the tangible participation in Jesus, your great work, you offering up your body and you shedding your blood, I pray that we'd come with a renewed awe and joy for what you've done, for why your incarnation was so necessary, for why the physical body is so important. I pray you'd even now free us from the condemnation we feel when we talk about physical bodies, free us from the shame, free us from the self-righteousness. Help us to come this morning seeing our body as the gift that it is. Meet us, strengthen us with power by your spirit that we might go back out into this world and use the bodies you've given us for your purposes in this world. We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.